Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Train Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and uh, we are still recording remotely here. Um, I think that's probably going to be a permanent uh, kind of format for the show, at least um, even when things get back to some sort of uh, semblance of normalcy, which we're, we're still yet to kind of see what that new normal is going to be like. But uh, for the time being, we're still re- working remote. But the, the beauty of that is that I can have guests like we have today, uh, which is uh, we've got Vince Pollard on the show. He's got a new book out. He's working with Jen. He's, but the, you're in Columbia. And uh, this is probably the first, uh, I think, Zoom interview that we've done outside of the country. We've done a few in person in Europe, but uh, never South America. So welcome to the show, Vince. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. So um, everybody can tell from your heavy Colombian accent that you've lived there your whole life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I was born in England, moved moved to Canada like about 10, 12 years ago, lived in Toronto for a long time, which is where I learned to bartend. And then I moved to Colombia two, two years ago. That's great, man. So, I mean... You know, I always like to start back at the beginning a little bit because, you know, especially in this day and age, I feel like we've we've gotten this deluge of uh, kind of bartenders coming up on Instagram and doing their live videos and doing all these podcasts. And, you know, we're obviously adding to that 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 noise out there. But, you know, how did you get started? Because it's always an interesting path. A lot of us kind of end up from all these different walks of life. And I always say that we're probably the highest educated group of individuals, you know, in any one profession, other than perhaps doctors, lawyers, et cetera. But, you know, it's just such a wide range of, uh, of education and experience. And so how did you get started when, when you were in, uh, in England, you know, in getting started in, I guess, in bars in general and then making that jump over into craft? Yeah, well, in England, uh, as a student, I worked in a, a couple of bars, like, you know, like a traditional pub. I worked on a ferry selling Lagavulin and, you know, whatever, like, you know, like get in the whiskey duty free shop. I didn't actually bartend like real cocktail bartending until I moved to Canada. And it was completely by mistake. I got my visa in Canada through some kind of weird loophole that was allowing in graphic designers with video experience. Okay. Very specific. But also quite a, quite an easy crossover into bartending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, it's, you have to make custom products for clients, you know? So it's, it's kind of, you know, and uh, adjust things according to people's whims and learn their tastes. And, you know, so they're, they're a crossover. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know tons of them. <laughs> Actually, yeah, there are a lot of web designers, I think, that work in bars. bars yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I did that. And then I lived in this pretty sketchy at the time neighborhood in Toronto. Um, now it's pretty nice. It's gentrified, but it's, um, you know, and, and with that gentrification, obviously it's a, always a double-edged sword, right? Like it's a bit nicer than it was, but it's also lost a bit of the character. Uh, um, but back in the day when I lived there, 2008, I moved to this neighborhood. I, I met this Bangladeshi guy who inherited a bar from his uncle and didn't know what to do with it. His uncle moved away. He left him the business and he was like, Ronty, Here's a here's a here's a restaurant. Make it work, and it was a bit like that that episode of Seinfeld where they come into him and be like, "You should cook the food from your country," and it goes disastrous. <laughs> <from wrong. Yeah. laughs> we, being a British guy, I don't know if you know this about British people. We love curry. Like it's all we. Eat. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's I was the national cuisine. Yeah, I asked him. He was cooking curry one day, and I was like, "Oh, is that curry you're making? And what kind of curry?" And he was like let me try some and I was like why don't you sell this he's like oh people in Canada don't, don't like curry I make burgers and meatballs and I was like seriously man there are people maybe the older people in the neighborhood don't like curry but people of our generation love you know we're open to that and we suggested he put it on the menu and we became like a little dive bar with uh, electronic music nights and curry so that that's that's a hell of an entree into it because you ended up at some pretty badass places after uh, you know kind of building some bar programs and and curry I mean, quite quite well known with high accolades. Yeah, I ended up working at Geraldine. Um, I worked at Northwood, which is a really nice neighborhood bar. Um, they did good cocktails, and then I worked at Geraldine, which was very well known within Toronto. It only lasted two years. Um, it was like an absinthe uh, oyster bar, very Parisian, very New Orleans kind of influenced. If you've ever ever been to Maison Premier in New York, in Brooklyn, it was a bit like that kind of vibe. You know, suspenders, oysters, absinthe cocktails. You know. You know, it was it was pretty pretty cool. And then um, I moved to Baraval, which is like one of my favorite bars in the whole world. Um, and I love Spain. I've been always been obsessed with Spain. I didn't think I'd end up in Colombia. I always thought I'd end up in Spain. And Baraval, they do like sort of San Sebastian kind of like you know northern Spanish sort of tapas style, or inspired by that. And then they culinary you know, mecca. Yeah, exactly right. But they 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 don't do it like faithfully. They, they the idea is they're not like a Spanish restaurant, but they take all that influence. They take the vibe, they take the food, they take the you know using some of the sherry vermouth and everything, and then 
just you know but it's it's uh it's a really cool space so i worked there and then yeah ended up traveling and then went back and worked at baraval again and another really cool dive bar called tennessee tavern which is part of the same group but which unfortunately closed during covid which is really sad um it was a really great it was like eastern european food like polish you know like schnitzels stuff like that well that's awesome i mean that you're being able to kind of jump across and like i know we've just condensed like a decade of your life into like three minutes but you you know you pick up all these like little things as, as we all do and anybody that listens to the show you know obviously knows I, i'm rum geek and i have mentioned you know but you know a decade ago i didn't know a damn thing about it. a lot of us didn't there is wasn't a lot of literature out there and that and you know and uh, I, i've always said that i don't know how anyone uh outside of our industry really becomes a professional in in wine or spirits tasting uh just because we have the opportunity to try you know 30 different bottles a week without having to buy 30 different bottles a week and, and you know, and so um, I do want to get into it a little bit later. But you, you, there's a very specific reason um, that we are recording a little bit later than anticipated today, um, because you've been doing some work in a distillery. Um, but I guess we should uh, we should talk. You know, you you did make the jump to Colombia. Are, are you in Bogota? Is that right? I was in Bogota. I was in Bogota for almost two years, and we recently, like a month ago, just moved the production to Cartagena. It's, so Cartagena is very different from Bogota. Bogota is like i think it's 2600 meters up above sea level and it's essentially it's essentially like like uh it reminds me of london in the 1960s like obviously before my time but it reminds me of the vibe of london in the 1960s with uh, in spanish it's like it's rainy all the time the traffic is horrible uh but it's kind of cool like it's like really rock and roll kind of city like it's like you know really there's a cool little obviously this year no one can take advantage of it but there's really cool little nooks and crannies little cool bars empanada places it's really cool Cartagena is the opposite world Cartagena is Caribbean it's really chill um on the weekend there's some workers doing some construction in my house we had a delivery of the cement by donkey you know it's like it's a different world it's a different world man yeah it's a country that it's it's been on my list and i really regret um you know obviously in in hindsight looking at um travel restrictions now you know in 2020 but uh, last time i was in central america was a few years ago we were in panama city and had some extra time to kill um and we were hanging out with uh, like carlos esquivel and and, and uh, don pancho and it was like we had a few extra days and it was like hmm do we do, go to boquete or do we go to medellin and we ended up going into the mountains in Boquete. And since then, I've, I've regretted not popping over to Medellin. It was, it's about the same kind of one-hour flight from Panama City. I think you made the right choice because I, I think you want like a month in Colombia. Yeah, really. Yeah, I just would have like wet my whistle and then have been absolutely disappointed. Yeah, I, I mean, you wouldn't have been disappointed, but you, it would have been like, you know, it's like I went to Berlin once for like five days and it just was infuriating. It's like, I, I, I want to live here, you know, for a year, just really get to know it. I think you you and I would travel well. That's exactly, uh, you know, it's the debate I have with my wife quite often because, you know, when I go to a place and I love it, I want to be there for a while. She wants to see everything and, you know, and, and all the sites and like the, the checklist. And I'm like, oh, I love this. You know, we've, we've been to Rome numerous times and I just like to go. I have friends there. It's comfortable. I know how to get around. You know, I, I love the area. And she's like, but I want to see something new. Like I do too. But I also like the comfort of, you know, exploring an area that's comfortable. So, so anyhow, I mean, you, you know, you did make, so you've gone from, from England to Canada, um, some two incredibly warm and tropical climates, and you just, you've got really tired of that. And uh, so, but, but you did, you made it up and in, in down into Colombia. Um, what, what kind of precipitated the move to go to South America? Well, I came here about three years ago, three, four years ago for a year. And even though I'm 46 now, so like at the time I was like 40, maybe 42, 43 when I left, something like that. You're giving me hope because I'm, I'm 43. I'm like, oh, cool. It's not too late. It's not too late to just pick up and go. Well, I just never, like when I came to Toronto, like whatever that was, like 12, 13 years ago, my plan was to stay for a year um, and go to Latin America. And I never left because I, I mean, I went, I went to Buenos Aires, Cuba, like I, I visited, but I never did like the, the sort of year backpacker thing. I did it in Spain, but I never did it in Latin America. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. I did it. And then I met a guy who is a Swiss guy. He was working in a hostel. I helped him out with the menu. He invited me to Switzerland to learn how to make gin in uh, Turicum is the name of the distillery in Zurich. Uh, I went there, did like an internship, 
there we did like a little pop-up I did some drinks I did like a month internship a month pop-up and then just yeah learned the process how to make gin and then Philip who's one of the partners in Turicum he was like let's do gin in Colombia because it isn't a good Colombian gin a couple of people have made inroads into it like they've made like you know an addition but then it sort of disappears or um dictador the rum the rum maker i'm sure you're familiar with it they've, they've made a couple of colombian gins but they they tried to export it internationally it didn't work and now you can only you can only get it in cartagena um so it's not really like an actual product that has national distribution international distribution it's just like a little sort of vanity project that they did and they never really went further with it um so there hasn't really been like a Colombian gin yet, like made in Colombia. So is that something, I mean, I, obviously it's needed because there's a niche, but uh, was, is that something that you were doing prior? I mean, was gin your spirit? That was what your go-to was and you couldn't wait to kind of work within that space or did it kind of just fall into your lap? And with, you know, again, because the the, the paths of distillation are, are open to, to all of us a lot, I think after you spend a good decade in the industry. I mean, you're English. You got that going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You beat me to it. I was going to say that it's kind of in my blood. Like, you know, the, when I was in Portugal on vacation at like 13 years old, the first time my dad was like, do you want a sip of my gin and tonic? You know, it was that was the drink, you know. Um, you know, mum's not looking. You know, she's barbecuing the sardines. Have a quick, you know, do you want to try? So, so I guess it's kind of like it is a bit in my blood that it had to be gin. But to be honest, when I was bartending in Toronto, I didn't really have a spirit. And if you, if you um, like the, the book that you're talking about that I just published, the Behind Bars, like I, I, I think it's quite evenly divided. There's some scotch drinks, some bourbon drinks, some mezcal drinks. I do, for shaken drinks, I do like white spirits. It just makes more sense. Um, obviously, it's, it's really fun when you use brown spirits in shaken. But um, yeah, I tend to be quite traditional in that way. I'm, I always reach for the typically reach for the white spirits for the shaken, you know, like gin, white port, like, you know, triple sec and stuff, and then reach for the brown spirits for boozy. I'm quite, quite boringly traditional. Like but, that. you know, I mean, speaking <laughs> of that, obviously, I, I, I say this quite often um, because the question gets asked of me, what are your favorite rums? What are you drinking right now? And almost without fail, I'm drinking unaged or very lightly aged rums, um, you know, because... I, I do drink a lot of cocktails. They obviously are more affordable, but I mean, you know, it's just this, the pure essence of coming off the still, there's just something so raw and, and you know, you, the, the terroir that you get out of that is just, it really, really excites me about that. It just, I, I, my eyes light up and I go on these 25 minute lectures to people that don't want to hear it, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir here because I, I do think that there's, there's almost like a, I, I hesitate to use the word purity because that can be confused with other, uh, um, you know, terminologies within distillation. Um, but that's, that's quite interesting. So are you, um, you're down there, you know, working with some gin and uh, is, is it also, are you working at any bars while you're uh, there in Cartagena? This year I've been um, pretty busy. Like the first half of the year I was busy with the book, the second half of the year busy with, with Salvage Inn. Well, let me fill you in. You didn't miss anything on the first half of the year. I know. <laughs> we couldn't even, in Bogota it was very strict. We couldn't even leave the house. We were allowed to leave the house. Depending on the number of your ID, you could leave the house every other day, but depending on the number of your ID. And then, um, you know, and only to go shopping, only to go to the bank. You wouldn't, you weren't allowed to like, to walk the dog. You could walk the dog for 20 minutes. My, my roommate had, has a dog, so that was nice. A good excuse to, to, to go out. Um, but yeah, it was very strict. So it was like, it was nice to actually have this project to do. Um, I did do some kind of like bar, uh, bar assessor kind of, uh, I can't even remember what, what do you call that bar consulting? Sorry, it's Assessor de Bares in Spanish. I couldn't even remember what it was in English. Well, obviously the uh, immersion, immersion program is working. <laughs> My Spanish isn't, isn't fluent, but it's definitely, um, I, I don't know if I'm learning Spanish or I'm, it's just, it's just replacing words of English and now I'm going to not be to speak either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's always the trick when learning a language, right? And I always feel like such an idiot as an American because, you know, it's so rare to find anyone that speaks anything other than, you know, American English <laughs> in the States. But, and you know, I've got, I have employees in my kitchen that speak five, six languages, you know, but um, most of my employees, uh, I've got a Thai restaurant. So I, in back there, you'll hear Thai, uh, Laotian, Burmese, Spanish, English. I'm like, you know, I can speak a bit of Spanish uh, fluently enough to get by. Um, very, very, very rudimentary Thai and, and English. But yeah, you know, like you said, you know, it's um, 
getting by is you really do have to kind of immerse yourself in it. And I think that's, you know, where that's where my wife learned to, you know, curse like a sailor. Um, <laughs> immersion, immersion in a restaurant. Um, so it's really great that you've been like doing, and I do want to kind of revisit that because I want to get some details in that, but I don't want to lose sight of the, the fact that we've been chatting a little bit um, about your new book which I have in front of me, and I, I have actually checked out. I've had it in my uh, possession for a little while. It took, a, it took a minute to kind of get you onto the, onto the show with you know, the disaster that's been COVID. And um, You said you listened to the show, so you know I, I closed two of my restaurants earlier this year. And so, yeah, it's been a rough year, but this is a super, super cool book, man. It was on my radar before, um, before we had gotten connected. Um, in fact, you know what? You, you had mentioned Camper English, being a big fan of Camper English. Um, and I saw that Camper had put it on his feed um, at one point on Instagram. Nice, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, hey, that's cool. That's a great book. Uh, it's cool because it reminds me a little bit of uh, Andre Darlington did his like booze and vinyl book. And, and Andre's been on the show. But th this is done in a much more uh, a straightforward way. And I, what I love is that you didn't attack... Um, I, mean, I guess I'll let you t talk about it, but I mean, so I guess let's get the basics of the book. I'll let you explain it so I don't just, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my impressions later. For, for those who haven't seen it, I guess, too. Um, yeah, well, basically, the project came to me through through my co-writer, Paul, Paul Sloman, who's, who's in the UK. And he'd lined up Sean McManus, who does all the beautiful illustrations for the book. They are fantastic, by the way. Yeah, they're great, right? They're superb. I have a couple of originals in my house, which is super exciting. Um, I haven't seen them yet because they're at my brother's house in England, but I, I ha he sent me a photo. I'm quite excited. Um, so I, I wasn't really familiar with Sean, um, but he's done like sort of Swamp Thing, Sandman, like even Batman. But he's done a lot of stuff, Marvel and DC, I think. Um, so that's, I was pretty excited when I, when I heard about the project. And Paul is a graphic designer and he's done a lot of books but you wouldn't see his name necessarily unless you look in the back credits. Like he's done the layout, the design, and he had this idea for the book and we talked about it. And I was like, I love the idea. It's really fun. And the idea was that we wanted to do something that we wanted to do something that bartenders wouldn't scowl at, that bartenders would look at and be like, I like this recipe. This is how I would make it. Or if not, like it's a reasonable way to make it, even if it's not my recipe, if, you know, everyone has their own recipes, but at the same time that someone who didn't know about bartending could pick it up. And it's in layman's terms. It's not like all like, you know, industry speak and confusing. And I tried to make it so it was, uh, yeah, very easy to pick up. And it's got different levels. Some drinks are a bit more difficult. There's punches and there's drinks that involve syrups, house-made syrups. And then there's like an Americano, which is like, you know, 30 seconds. Right. And I think that's the thing that punched through, right? It's a tight it's a tight rope to walk to be able to appeal to bartenders and appeal to somebody that may be just having a dinner party. But um, what I found is that it's a very cool book uh, to have just sitting out. Um, mind you, I haven't had any parties for a while, um, but I could see this, I could see this just sitting out on my counter um, where somebody leaves through. And like you said, you know, um, for somebody that works in the bar industry, I'd, I'd be absolutely be happy to make any of these drinks in here. And it's, it's easy for somebody to flip through and be like, Oh, this looks cool. But what I really like about it, uh, again, so what you've done uh, is called Behind Bars, High Class Cocktails Inspired by Low Life Gangsters. Um, we see a lot of kind of attempts at pairing cocktails to non-cocktail related um, themes or characters, things like that uh, in the cocktail world. Like, you know, right now, uh, what was it? Uh, I guess Chad Austin just wrote Everybody's Got a Fucking Cocktail Book, I think just came out. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to find that niche because especially in 2020, you know, like you said, you've got six months of being locked down. It's time to write a book. Um, but what I really liked is it was there was very obviously a lot of time and effort that went into the book because I've seen most of the films in here, but you did not you did not choose actors or historical figures, right? Yeah, I mean, this is not a um, when he says low life gangsters, gangsters, and so that was the part when I got the book. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna find out that you know Al Capone drank whiskey or you know. Uh, John Gotti drank Red Bull and vodka <laughs> or something like that. But it's not that, right? Because it's all fictional stories. And I think that's something that we can all relate to, especially at a time now where everybody's binge watching television um, and binge watching films and then kind of revisiting those classics. And again, paired with the amazing illustrations by Sean McManus, it's, it, it's, the layout is beautiful, but the illustrations make you want to make the drink. Like it's the first thing you catch. You know, and so, you know, how did you, 
you said you concepted the book. Now, was did you were the one coming up with the recipe? Um, I guess research. You were kind of. Did you go into it with kind of an idea, uh, or did you actually sit down and, and watch these back to back? There's a lot of films in here. Yeah, I watched I watched every film pretty much in the book and a lot of episodes of every series. And I mean, some of them I'd already seen, you know, like Breaking Bad and stuff. I've already seen it. So, um, but um, the, the, my co-writer Paul, a lot of times he was like, "Let's do Gustavo Fring in Breaking Bad because he's the best character to pick." It's less obvious than one of the others, one of the, you know, you know, Jesse or um, what's his name? Heisenberg or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's like he, you know, he has that thing with the poison tequila and that just seemed like a good way to, you know, a good way in. So we tried to pick people where there was some logic to why we were picking them. Like it had, there was some basis in reality as to why this person would have this drink. And I tried to make it, you know, like Carlito's way, like he has like a, you know, like a, a riff on a Cuban drink on a Cuba Libre. It tr had, had to have some thematic link to the character or be actually something they drank in a, a pivotal scene of the movie. And that's where I feel like your jumping off point was fantastic because the, um, not all of these characters do drink in the films. And so you do need to kind of, and there was, there was um, kind of a cheat, you know, um, with, uh, with several of them. I mean, you could just be like, oh, well, you know, this person's, uh, you know, whatever English, we're going to put a gin drink or whatever on there. And that's just kind of the, the bullshit, you know, phone it in way of doing it. And you didn't do that. Um, you know, I, as I noticed, with some, uh, there's obviously because we have the um, over-representation of Italian organized crime in films, there's obviously an over-representation of Italian characters in the book. So you, you just couldn't put, uh, you know, Amari in every single drink and necessarily. But, um, you know, you... Is this your first book that you've written? Yeah, yeah. This is the first the first time I've dabbled in cocktail writing, really. But you, this is not the first time you've written. You do have an, no. a background in writing. Yeah, like I'm actually, a me well, even though I've left Bogota, I'm still a member of this Bogota writers group. And I, I think um, hopefully I'm submitting some stories for them for the anthology next year, which is fiction. And I have a background of writing for, uh, writing about music, mostly. And specifically techno. <laughs> Yeah, like okay. It's, it's very niche, but I mostly write about dark techno. Well, if you're going to write about it, you got to write for the dark. Exactly. <laughs> it's, the only way, it's the most interesting stuff out there. Well, I mean, yeah, again, you know, you're, you've chosen the two most popular niches in writing, I think, you know, um, gangster cocktails and techno reviews. Yeah, yeah. Dark techno, dark techno reviews. We really also tried to, like, you know, you talked about, like, the, the, obviously there's a glut of Italian-American you know, characters because there's so many Italian American mobsters in history, fictional and, and, and reality. But I, we tried to put really hard to try to put a balance of different, you know, like gender and race and background. Like we tried to put, cause there's so many cool, like Japanese and Korean gangster movies. And also I put Jim John Mush's, um, the lone man from Lim limits of control, which is an unusual one. I think. Did you, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you have Tim, two Jim Jarmusch films in the book? Oh, there's Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog Ghost Dog, that's right. Ghost yeah. Dog's in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> that true. is one of the most underappreciated films across the board. Like, I, I have the soundtrack. I have the Japanese import soundtrack. I saw I saw on Twitter that you're a RZA fan, so that doesn't surprise Oh, dude, me. yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I need to get all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so, I mean, but that's, so, I mean, that leads me into, I mean, so were you... Uh, kind of exclusively choosing the characters that you would represent or did you and Paul kind of work that out together or, uh, and to kind of go from there? I know that there's been a big collaborative process, which usually ends up with the best results. Yeah. It was very much like, you know, Paul suggested a certain number, like we ended up with 60 and Paul, I think he ran like initially ran five by the publisher and they, they said like no to one of them. And then we changed it and we came up with like a five to do the sample for the pitch. And that was like, that happened like, a long time ago that happened 2018 i think or early 2019 i think and then i forgot about the project and the publisher six months later come back to us was like it's a go and i was like oh i didn't think this was happening <laughs> you know that's sometimes how it long how long it takes in the publishing world sometimes it takes a good six months to for them to decide yes or no um and then basically we went through and the publisher there were some they didn't like um and they or some they wanted in there um and, but basically we chose them and we basically went back and forth. Like Paul would suggest somebody. And then there was some where, you know, we decided like, <clears throat> you know, we definitely don't want to put any gangsters in there, even the fictional, fictional representation of them. 
where someone might kind of be offended. Like, you know, like for a Colombian to put Pablo Escobar in the, in the book would be quite offensive because a lot of people actually suffered from his actions. Um, so we tried to be more sort of lean to the, the more fictional representation of people and less, you know, um, the, the more dramatic in reality. Um, and I mean, I love the idea that I like is, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think Sean's illustrations make this book. I mean, I think without it, it it's, I, I just love it. Sometimes I just look at the illustrations. and I don't even remember what my cocktails are. <laughs> I'm just flicking through it. But well, I it's fun because, like, yeah, you you flip through and you're like, oh, I love that film. Oh, I love this. You know, and Ray Ray Winston, you know, I was like, oh, ah, yeah. I fucking love Se- Sexy, Sexy Beast. Beast. Yeah, that's a good I, movie. Every, literally every time I walk out and, uh, you know, we get really giant uh, seasonal temperature swings um, in, in, in Indianapolis. So in the winter, it's quite cold as it is today. In the summer, it's just blistering hot. And every time I just, when I walk out that, nobody ever gets it. And I go, that's ah, fucking hot. <laughs> and just stand there it's fucking hot and it, what are you talking about like never mind never mind so it's like the greatest that 10 minutes of him just lying in the pool it's one of my favorite scenes but but, but do you say it with your shirt off while holding a champagne <laughs> yeah, yeah. cocktail right with him like all, all yeah. oiled down <laughs> yeah. with your champagne flute you know such an underrated yeah. and so uh, that's what I was going to ask about but you know you brought up that you know some of the the publisher did not um necessarily want some of them but are you at liberty to, or do you can you even remember some of the ones that they rejected or it's kind of water under the bridge at this point i think they made they mostly made suggestions rather than rejections i i, I can't remember the ones that there was one or two that they were like no nah, i don't really like the idea of this character and i can't remember but it was it was no one that we were really sorry to see go like it was like there were a couple that we had to fight for like some you know like and also the drinks like because I was at risk of making it a bit too complicated, or so I was told. But you know, as a bartender, I think it's very easy. But for for a home bartender, um, but I mean, the main thing is, like I said, like I I, wa- I didn't want it to be dumbed down because a lot of books that you see that are kind of like like this kind of book that you know they come out and they come out around this time of year, and the idea is that it's a nice gift to buy for someone who likes cocktails, who likes the movies, or maybe just like it's a nice stocking filler for someone. And a lot of the time they just fill these kind of books with like these horrible drinks that, you know, you know what I mean? Like vodka and orange juice and stuff. And it's just like, what is this horrible eighties beach drink? And I really, really fought my ground to like have some really serious drinks like Sazeracs and Vucarets and the Dunhill, which is one of my favorite drinks of all time, which is like a super weird, you know, it's got like sherry and vermouth and gin and absinthe. It's such a, it's such a weird drink, but it's my, probably my favorite cocktail actually. Well, and again, going back to some of the like more obscure films, and we you already mentioned two of my favorites: Ghost Dog, Gentle uh, Motion, and, and and Sexy Beast. But you know, you've got uh, History of Violence, Cronenberg. Uh, it's actually funny. Literally, as I sit here in my my home studio, um, my wife is upstairs watching um, Eastern Promises. You know, oh, so that's a good one too. It is such a good one. Yeah, that's <laughs> a that one's one. that one's for the part part two of Behind Bars. <laughs> But, that's, um, that's, that's probably a good movie for me to watch when I'm missing London because that, will, that movie will make me not miss London. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean, you, it does seem like you got a lot of kind of freedom of control over, like, what you got to be able to put in here. And you're obviously uh, relegated to kind of dealing with um, fictional gangsters. You mentioned Escobar not only being in poor taste, but also not fictional. I mean, you know, we do have characters like Scarface that were kind of loosely based on, um, you know, real life people, but they'd been kind of changed, especially Al Pacino's um, Scarface, which is, you know, two, two skips from the original. So, and so when you were coming up with these cocktails, like I said, there's, there's kind of an easy way to phone it in a lot of times, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're talking about trying to uh, come up with a drink that Tony Montana would drink. I mean, that's pretty obvious to just, you know, throw some Cuban rum in there. And, uh, but, but you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe he wouldn't. I don't know. Like he was pretty, he was pretty anti-Castro in the film. So maybe he wouldn't have drank, you know? So, uh, you know, kind of how did you, did you have to kind of force yourself outside of that box and like not do the easy thing of just throwing on a daiquiri? Well, um, I did put a daiquiri in there eventually with, with Maya Lansky. Uh, but, uh, but see, that's um, perfect that, you know, that's not the easy way out. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I you. Got, I mean, a daiquiri. I'm sure you agree. I mean, you got. I mean, a daiquiri, especially for people who are making drinks at home, and and it's like with also with a daiquiri. It's a drink I feel very sorry for because it's a drink 
that is like very misunderstood because it's frozen. You know, it's it's. I think I mentioned something like this in the book about its cheap frozen counterpart cousin of a drink. You know, I, I put it better in the book, but I, I make some joke like that in the book where it's like, but it's true. It's like you know, some when I talk about daiquiris, even in like places like Baraval or you know, like Geraldine the bars I work at in Toronto, I would suggest to people who are cocktail connoisseurs. Um, they're not bartenders, but they are people who drink cocktails on a regular basis. I would suggest a daiquiri, and they're like, "But you don't even have the machine." And I was like, "No, my my biceps are the machine." Like this. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, I mean, not now because I haven't bartended for two years. So I, just, <laughs> I am lifting heavy barrels of gin, though. So that hopefully I'll get them back. Oh, believe me. I mean, you know, we get a lot of people come in. We're, we've got a tiki bar as well, the Inferno Room, and uh, yeah, people coming in. And, you know, we, we've got a whole daiquiri section. We, we specifically did like five daiquiri riffs to put on the menu to kind of encourage, well, A, A, the speed, so that, you know, we didn't get stuck making 14 ingredient drinks all night. <clears throat> Excuse me. But also kind of uh, letting people know that, you know, that slushy, frozen, you know, concoction is not uh, necessarily, you know, what, what you're be, what you're, you should be ordering. But it is definitely, we're still chipping away at that stone. So, I, you know, I don't feel that we've really necessarily escaped that first wave entirely, at least in areas of the world um, or areas of the United States um, where it's a gimme that craft cocktails have taken over, that everybody understands what's going on. And, you know, in, in 06, 07, you kind of had to force people to drink an old-fashioned, <laughs> you know, or something. They had to finally figure out what the bitters on the bar top was for. And, you know, now things have changed a little bit, but there are definitely still pockets all over. And again, bringing it back to Camper English, you know, we talked about the dangerous cocktails on our last interview. And he said, you know, it's the dangerous ingredients are very much alive and well in, in a lot of pockets of the country in the United States. So, you know, as you are kind of deciding which classics go in and which ones to kind of riff hard on, did you, was this just like a total fun at home experimental process because you were working on this during COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the problems I had though is that it's really hard in Colombia to get any decent alcohol. Um, Maraschino liqueur only came in like a year ago, um, and it's only one distributor that has it. Um, you know, in terms of Amaro, I've seen Fenet Branca. I think the uh, what's the other Vecchi Vecchio de Capo. Um, I think that's how you say it. The the square bottle. I've seen that one. There's no other Amaro. Like, I, there's literally like you know you. In, you know, and I'm used to having like, you know, the back bar with a Verna, a fridge full of 10 vermouths, 10 sherries. The only dry vermouth I can buy in Cartagena that I've managed to find so far is Martini and Rossi. So it's difficult. It was difficult. So I had to rely on a lot of my memories of, the, you know, I have, I've got my notebook of bartender's choices that went down really well, different twists that I know off by heart. So I, I really kind of lent heavily. And I also kind of thought, this is my first cocktail book. I hope you know, I get to do a second one, but I don't have to be too weird in the first one. You know, I can go back to what are my classics. The only thing is, you know, it, the drink had to pair with the gangster. Like I was trying so hard to put an aviation in this book. I couldn't fit it into a character. I really tried to, I wanted an aviation because I love a good aviation. Like I do too. It's one of my favorite drinks, and oh. especially you being a gin guy. Yeah, exactly. It's mostly gin, right? It's like, but it's, um, I, I, I love aviation so much and it's a drink that often is like, you know, not very well made because they put too much like, uh, you know, creme de violette in there. And it's like, it just tastes like your, your grandmother's sort of potpourri, you know, bowl, whatever that she had in the hallway. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right, man. That's exactly <laughs> my issue with it. Yeah. But you put the right amount, you know, like I, I always mix a little bit of creme de violette and, and simple syrup to not have too much of that floral flavor. And you choose the right gin, you know, like a beef eater or something kind of straight something you know serious um it's just such a good drink and i was i want to put this in there because i want people to know what i think is the perfect ratio and 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 perfect gin choice and everything like that for a good aviation i just couldn't make it fit any of the characters <laughs> sure so well as you you know as, as you're discussing that i'm thinking you know how is as i guess working in the spirits industry in Colombia changed your perception of the industry and bartending kind of access lo lo logistics, you know, because I know that <clears throat> when I've spent time in Latin America, uh, the first time I went, I was given a heads up by a buddy of mine. Um, and he said, just, you know, don't expect there to be cocktails here. Like, you know, there isn't a scene. You can drink rum 
um, and maybe a soda, but you, I mean, you're, you're not going to have a, a cocktail scene. And, um, and actually during that particular trip, speaking of the daiquiri, <laughs> I did, I finally, after like a week, I was dying for a daiquiri and I went up to this bar and it was kind of clubby. It was like a rooftop bar and I asked for a daiquiri and the uh, lady said, sorry, um, our blender is, you know, kind of acting goofy. Give me 10 minutes. And I said, no, 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 no blender. It's okay. We were speaking in Spanish because she couldn't speak English. And um, she looked at her boss, and he kind of gave a nod and then walked over and grabbed the tens. And I was like, I win! I win! <laughs> you know, we got it. And so by the end of the night, we all ended up going out together drinking daiquiris. But, you know, it's um, – but there wasn't a scene. I mean, you know, like I – I don't, I don't want to sound like a dick. Like, I want to know, show them how to make a drink. But, you know, um, it, you know that culture is really kind of still grasping. And like we talked about, it, it has not taken over and everywhere. And you've kind of jumped from Bogota to Cartagena. Um, and, and, you know, you're getting your, – your concrete delivery is via donkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so how is that kind of changing the way you come uh, or approach drinks and um, kind of the industry? Well, I mean, I think in terms of in terms of my bartending style, like I've always been like really like 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 leaning heavily into Amaras, Sherry's, um, bitters, like always kind of like using a lot of like bottled ingredients, you know, like like very even if it's shaken drinks, like you know, mixing like if I'm doing like a whiskey pineapple Japanese whiskey pineapple thing, I'm gonna put some kind of Amaro in there for depth. And what it did is like you know because I was working a little bit in a bar here, you know, doing the consulting and everything. And I just was like, I don't have these ingredients. So I had to like, but what Colombia does have is lulo, which is the most amazing fruit that ever existed that's only in Colombia and I think maybe a bit of Ecuador. It's, it's like a, it's, it looks like a tomato. It has prickly spikes on it that are a bit like a kiwi, but spikier, like they can actually give you a splinter kind of thing. And inside it looks like a tomato. You cut it open, it's the shape of the tomato. And the taste is like, kind of like, a bit passion fruit, a bit kiwi, and a bit something else I can't quite remember. Um, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, kiwi, passion fruit, and then the note of maybe something, something else. Um, but it's like so delicious. So th I started making drinks. Like I made like a drink with like Lulo and Sherry, like, cause I, I managed to get like Tio Pepe, the only Sherry I could get, but I got that. And I did like, li you know, lime juice, and, you know, cause all of the citrus, all of the, the pineapple is better than any pineapple you'll find in North America. You know, well, Mexico aside, maybe, but like, but like you know, Canada and the States, for sure. Like, you know, the pineapple's like fresh, you know. Um, so I just started leaning more towards produce. Um, I did a milk punch and I put like um, panela, which is like a cooked, uh, you know, the molasses of the sugar and they cook it up and it's like really, like demerara, you know, like a demerara sugar comes in a block. And I started using panela, I started using lulo, I started using uh, cascara de cafe, you know, like the, the dried skin of the coffee which I don't know if you've tried, but it's more like a, it tastes more like Roy, it tastes more like Roy Bosch tea than it does coffee. Um, it only has 25% of the caffeine of coffee. You can, and, and some like hipster coffee shops will sell the cascara in, 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 a, in a, like a bag and you'll just make, make it like a tea. You'll just brew it in water. It's nice, but it tastes like Roy Bosch tea, has a little bit of a kick. Um, but, I, you know, it's like cacao nibs. You know, I just started like being like, I can't do the things I did back home, but I have to appreciate what Colombia has to offer that Canada doesn't. So I just switched my style and I start, I, I, I've never really been into tiki. It's never been my thing. I appreciate it. Well done. But I, I don't really like a lot of juice and I don't really like big volume drinks. I like, like, you know, a lot of stiff kind of uh, sippers. So that's so, but I had to go more that way. I had to become more like tropical, more mixing these, these fresh juices, making syrups out of, you know, you know like passion fruit and just really leaning towards like the shaken, and, and even in my old fashions, like we had terrible rum. Like we, the only rum we could get hold of that didn't cost the earth, that wasn't because importation tax is 30%. So the only rum that was the Ronde Medellin, which is pretty nasty. And mm -hmm. especially that one. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad, right? It's quite yeah, weak. It's um, I don't know if I'm going to regret saying this. So, <laughs> someone's going to find me and not by donkey, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be on a, a motorbike passing by the house. <laughs> right. No. Um, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to offend any Columbians because there is some nice, there is some nice rum coming out, but a lot of it is like, you know, it's done for like just party. It's for partying in the bar. It's not, it's not quality product. And so I was like, I wanted to make a rum old fashioned. So I made like a, you know, a syrup instead of just using bitters and sugar, I made like a panela syrup with cascara de cafe that, and it made it seem like 
the, the sort of the, the the funkiness of the of the coffee skins made it seem like you're drinking like a rum that had more hogo than it actually did. And those are the kinds of things that I think that we have yet to kind of really scratch the surface on because it's been so, um, I guess, American and and UK centric the the kind of cocktail wave and there's been all these great things happening in China, Southeast Asia, Latin America that you know we it's easy to forget, um, especially when it comes to like you said produce all the access to other ingredients where yes it can be quite tricky. I just spent uh, about five weeks in Asia last year. Um, in uh, Bangkok and Vietnam and Singapore and um, and yeah, there was a there was a definitely a hard time getting a lot of the booze. At least in Thailand, Singapore has everything, but it also costs like forty five dollars for a cocktail. But you know, but you know, in Thailand, you know, it was a hard time. We we could get a little bit here, a little bit there, but the produce, holy Jesus! Like you know, it was like yeah. I mean, it, it kind of it like you said, it kind of realigns the way you need to think about the approach of what you're trying to highlight and um, very interesting ingredients that um, are native to the area. You know, I was able to, I had a, a um, <laughs> distilled stink bug uh, liquor. Um, yeah. It sounds very strange um, when I was in Bangkok and, uh, but it just tasted sour. I, I was explained to me before I had it, but it was going to bring some acidity to the drink and not something that I would have thought of, but, uh, but again, you know, th those sorts of things kind of just taking what you have and, um, and elevating it. I think that's really what it's all about, right? It's just elevating it and, and bringing attention because everybody always wants what they don't have. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, it, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about it, right? Like, you know, and, and for some, you know, I used to complain about the LCBO, which is in Toronto, the, the liquor board of, of Ontario, and they control all the liquor stores. And I used to complain about how it was more expensive in the States and the selection was worse. And now I'm like, when I hear people complaining about it, I'm like, please don't. Like, it's, I mean, I, I don't really like them as an organization because they, they recently just tried to do some shitty thing where they paired with skip the dishes. And and that was like really bad because, like, you know, bars are having such a hard time anyway. Like, it's like, that's not, stay in your lane. Like, you're the middleman. You are the middle, you are the government agency that's selling liquor to bars and private citizens. So I'm not a big fan of them, but I do now appreciate the selection now living in Colombia because I, I can get, I can't get anything. Hardly. So, so as you know, going back to your book, you're putting these things together, and you you, you named a couple of uh, of films that I really enjoyed, and uh, and with your lack of access to ingredients, um, I'm guessing informed a lot of your kind of decision making. You you know, you've got your notebooks from from uh, Canada and, and from the UK when you were there, but you know, one that pops to mind is um, you had a better tomorrow in here, which you know I love John Woo's Hong Kong films. Um, grew up with him and just, and especially anything with Chow fat he's so amazing. But you know, there's like a whole world of like uh, liquor out there in, in Asia that we don't have a lot of access to here, you know? Um, so did that also, uh, when you were putting together drinks for those characters, was, it, was that a thought? They're like, ooh, I wish I could get a really badass like Baiju or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely that would have been, that would have been nice in, in some, some aspects for some characters. But I, I also didn't want to, um, I didn't want to kind of like pair the drinks too culturally specific to that person because it's kind of like, you know, it becomes a bit cliche when you, you're like, oh, I've got a Japanese guy. He must have a sake old fashioned or something. And it's like, why does Japanese people and Korean people, they love Negronis. So, you know, in Korea and Japan, they, they you know, they love Negronis. Industry people love Negronis. So this guy, you know, one of the characters, he's Asian gangster. He works in his his sort of cover job is working as a as a waiter, as a bartender. And I was like, for sure, if he his drink would be a Negroni, you know, if he if he's been cocktailing for a couple of years, for sure his drink would be a Negroni. Yeah, as a reader of the book and being familiar with, I say about eighty five percent of the films within it, um, I was like, yep, <laughs> yep. Yep, like he nailed that. Like, I mean, because it made you think about, like, is this really what this dude would drink? Like, yeah, I can see that guy sitting at the bar, this lady, you know, walking in with with that in her cocktail glass. And I, I really think that you did a kind of a fantastic job doing that. Again, it's it's. I know it's a tough thing to do because it there are so many people out there kind of um, just doing it, like you said, to crank out some sort of holiday book, stocking stuffer. Like, hey, look, here's 45 riffs on a vodka martini. And, yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, I get those from my parents every year. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, we got you a new book. I'm like, oh, ah, yeah. yeah, okay, one more for the donation bin. 
Um, but five hundred drinks you can make with blue curacao. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that goes back to nineties bartending. You're my age. Yeah, it's yeah like you remember yeah, the nineties? Exactly. You're like, um, I don't know how to make that drink. What color is it? Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all, the, all those cl- the, yeah. yeah, the club yeah. days were fun, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, exactly. But um, so you you. Again, this was just the first half of the year. Um, before I let you go today, I really uh, I'd be remiss if we don't talk a little bit about what you're doing at Selvagen. So, um, what, what was going down to Columbia? Was the intent to work at the distillery? Um, was that the reason you're there? Or that got happened kind of simultaneously as you arrived. Yeah, I mean, my my original when I came down here for a year, like three four years ago, my original plan was just to immerse myself in Spanish because I learned it in school and I never got very good at it. And I was like, you know, in in you know, in Toronto, there's some Spanish speakers. There's a big population of Colombians, but like it's like you said, immersion is really the only way. So that was really my motivation. And then, and then, like I say, I made the connection. And yeah, the reason I came down here specifically this time was to make the gin. And um, it's been a long process. I've been here two years, and I think this Friday coming, we're going to get the permission to sell it. Oh, that's amazing! Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so the by the time this, by, by the time people are hearing this. It should be, well, maybe available, but definitely, definitely <laughs> you'll have permission. Yeah, I, I, I hope so, because it's, it's, Colombia is very bureaucratic. That, that's one thing that we, we've discovered. And it's also COVID didn't help. COVID probably delayed the project by about nine months um, because all the government agencies that were processing everything just shut down and weren't working and were working part time. And it's been, it's been very, very tricky. We probably would have had this product in like at least May, maybe April, if it wasn't for COVID. Um, but, but yeah, basically the, I mean, the idea behind the project, my business partner, Philip, um, he basically the idea he, he came up with it. He's like, again, a bit like what I was telling you with my, how I changed my bartending style. He was like, Colombia has all these beautiful botanicals and fruits and seeds and herbs that it just screams gin to me. You know, he, he already had this gin distillery in Zurich, um, which also is known for like, you know, Swiss Alpine herbs and stuff like that. But he, he was just like, Colombia just seems exactly perfect. Um, so we have a lot of ingredients that are uh, specific to here. We have corozo, which is a fruit that, that tastes a bit like kind of hibiscus, I think is the nearest thing I can describe it to. It's a little um, seed. It, it looks like a coffee cherry, actually. And it has like a big seed inside and a little bit of mucus, like a, co- like a coffee bean does, a coffee cherry does, sorry. And um, a skin and then you have to like boil it uh, usually like when you're making juice uh, traditionally people will make um, make wine out of it too a lot of people ferment it but you have to like boil it in water and then extract the flavor and then ferment that basically and then there's um, you know we're using cacao um, cascara de cafe again which is obviously my favorite thing you probably realize that by now <laughs> um, yeah and limon mandarina which is a cross between a mandarin and a lime that's that's it's a nice citrus it's about because there's no lemons in Colombia. that's one thing that threw me threw me as well as a bartender there's no lemons you get you occasionally in the fancy supermarkets you'll see like an imported yellow lemon um but there's limes here there's plenty of there's a million limes and different types of limes but um limon mandarina is about the same acidity as a lemon because it's half lime half mandarin and it has this kind of kind of bergamot note in the peel so i was just like i have to use this in the gin so yeah so it's um the idea was like get ingredients from all over Colombia and make like a really nice London dry gin that has a Colombian flavor. Yeah. I, I definitely believe that despite there being that kind of this oversaturation in the markets of, of startup brands um, that some of the things that I'm most excited about uh, that I bring into my home bar are the things happening in places um, like Cartagena or, you know, I, I brought home a, a really, really beautiful, uh, Jen from Hanoi last year called Songkai, and it was just magical. And I brought there's a lot of really good uh, kind of agricole style rums coming out of Vietnam and Thailand. And it's just there's again, it's just this very arrogant way of the West thinking that we're the center of the universe, and you know, and it's all happening around us. And so you know, being able to kind of bring those native flavors, and you're living in an area that is known for just like this bounty. Uh, of of produce that's kind of untapped, right? I mean, like people just aren't familiar with it. I mean, you've just named five or six different things. I'm like, well, I have to go. I got to Google that. Yeah, I mean, my my house, the house I'm living in. Um, me and my buddy share this house, and it's surrounded by mango trees. 
So there's literally nets above the house so that when it comes mango season, which I'm told is like April or May, we don't get killed by a falling mango. Because <laughs> you know, these guys are big. Um, right now, there's nothing. It's not even flowering yet because it's just we're just coming into summer now. Um, but yeah, it's like there's produce everywhere. There's coconuts. And yeah, it's, it's definitely... Um, it seems like a good place for the produce. Logistically, Colombia is difficult. Um, it, it, infrastructure is not really there. Um, like, you know, countries like Ecuador, where they have a big highway that runs through the country. Colombia is very mountainous. And also, in addition to that, a lot of money that was paid for by tax money for infrastructure was stolen by politicians and used to buy massive yachts and farms and stuff like that. So it's kind of a bit sad in Colombia because, you know, like, you know, the, the story is that the metro, there's no metro in Bogota, but the story is it's been paid for twice and the money's been stolen by politicians. Wow. So th- you're, you're fighting an uphill battle to even get it accomplished in the first place. Um, you, you know, as, can you talk a little bit about the production? Uh, you know, I know that you probably had to jump through a lot of um, bureaucratic, you know, loopholes, or not loopholes, I guess, hoops to be able to make this happen because, I mean, that happens anywhere, like you talked about, uh, in, in Canada and certainly in the United States. And, you know, you've got to pass all sorts of certifications, but even putting your stills together and being able to, you know, operate in a safe facility, you, you, you have a partner that's doing it in Zurich, um, so you have some experience, but even still putting that in a new country is a totally different story. Can you talk a little bit about the production, what kind of stills you're using, et cetera? Or actually, you know, even I would, I did, would like to know what kind of base spirit you're using, um, what your neutral spirit yeah, is. Yeah, well, the, the, both of those things are interesting questions. The the um, In terms of the still, we're actually working with a partner. We're working in partnership with a distillery. Um, like, I make the gin, but I make it in uh, alongside the chief technical officer, like the chemist, of the distillery. So uh, it's quite nice because he's in charge of, like, the pressure and the temperature and, you know, all the technical stuff, which I don't have as much experience with. And obviously, it's a it's a big still. It's like a five hundred liter to like uh, eight hundred liter still, and then we have another still. They have another still, which is like eight. Uh, I think it's like a thousand liters to two thousand liters. Uh, right now, we're using a small one, and we we hope to keep using that until you know while it's feasible. Um, the product's coming out well, and um, but yeah, basically, we work in partnership with them. Um, there is stuff we'd like to do, like we'd like to import some you know some like stills of different sizes to make different projects and stuff. It's some nice copper stills from Germany. Um, but that, that's for the future. But for now, at least we have this partnership. We found someone who you know, wants to work with us. So that's nice. So basically I'm in charge of the recipe. Like I prepare all the spices. I, you know, the recipe's mine. Um, I go in, I take charge of that. We, I do the maceration, like we distill together. But I'm the, I'm the one. So you are macerating. Are you not doing a vapor no, we do, we, it's a It's a two-day maceration, like in it, in the still, um, we do, like beef feeder do basically, but but they I think beef feeder only do it overnight. I think it's like eighteen hours or something. Um, we do a, a two day maceration, two day two night <clears throat> maceration, and then we add the fresh ingredients. Uh, the fresh ingredients don't get macerated because I, I, you know, I don't think a lot of that would work. I think it would go bad. Um, I never I never really tried it because my instinct is like don't do that. You know? <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? It's like you know. Um, so yeah, all the dry ingredients get macerated, the fresh ingredients get added on the day of distillation. And, you know, um, yeah, it's like, it was stressful because I, I did all my tests in like a two liter desktop. Right. Kit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then what, the next stage up, there was nothing in between. We didn't have anything in between the two liters and 500 liters. So I was like, well, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of gin to, I don't know, fill up swimming pool with if it doesn't work sure yeah that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily scale up uh, yeah you know, even ratios yeah that's a, yeah. that's a little horrifying well a- another interesting thing in terms of distillation that you might find quite interesting is that i didn't think about at the time until we did the the, the first distill in cartagena cartagena is at sea level bogota is very definitely not so the distillation temperature in bogota what was coming out of my little still was 72 degrees centigrade instead of 78 78 you know 80 it was coming out at like 71 72 so you've got like a probably a good for the altitude you've got a good seven eight degrees difference so what that meant is that some of the herbal notes from some of the herbs we're using um it was bringing out the more delicate herbal notes without actually cooking the the leaves and when we brought it to cartagena that changed and we started getting green notes that we didn't like and i had to i had to adapt the recipe like the some of the herbs the balance of the herbs it needed a bit of a tweak 
Well, and you know that's what I, we always talk about terroir on the show. And you know when it talks when we start discussing distilled spirits, there's always the big debate: can you get terroir out of a, of a distilled spirit? But I, those are the kinds of things that I um, that I, in my mind, kind of attribute to as part of the whole package of terroir, right? Like because if you, that that's something that has to be happening in that place for that flavor with that recipe, because you can't just pick it up, move it, and say, okay, we've got this neutral spirit. Uh, with these uh, macerated botanicals, it ne- won't necessarily taste the same. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the hands of the distiller, all those things really go into it. I think that's the where the craft of it is. Um, and the, the kind of geeky stuff, you know, when we can start talking about stills and rectification and plates and all the fun stuff. Uh, you know, are you starting with, um, well, you're, you're in Colombia. Are you using neutral cane spirit or as your base or neutral grain spirit? We're using grain spirit. In <clears throat> um, Originally, we were going to use the cane spirit. Um, and actually, the, the reason I have cacao in my recipe for the gin, because it doesn't really taste like chocolatey or anything like that, I'm using, I'm using raw unfermented cacao, not toasted cacao. So it's like using the whole nibs and, and breaking them up. The reason I put that in there is because I wanted the oils from the cacao to give the, the spirit more body. Because the, the, what the cane really lacks for a gin is it doesn't really have a lot of body. Um, but what we found as we did tests is the cane spirit that we were able to get hold of was not consistent in quality. So we went for grain because it, it's a bit more industrially produced. It's a bit more like produced, like it's the same every time. And it has more body. So I, but I left the cacao in because the balance of, you know, I always say that like making gin is a bit like, like a, like a sort of like a botanical Jenga. It's like you take one thing out and the whole thing collapses. So I left it in, but I originally put it for the body to make, to sort of trick you into thinking it had more body than it had because we were using the, the very light cane spirit. Well, it's much preferable to glycerin. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. The, um, so I, I got on the website, which, so the, the, the website's up there. It looks very nice. It's got a little bit of info about you and your partners there, but you were telling me we, we, you, so that's a purely informational site at the moment, right? Because you guys don't have the, the ability to sell it quite yet. We're almost there. We're just a few days away, hopefully. Five days. <laughs> yeah, I hope so we have everything. We have like all the bottles, corks, the labels, um, the ke- the you know the carton boxes. Um, we just have this one last permission, and it's the very last hurdle. Like we've been, it's it, the the irritating thing for us is because of COVID. At the, the point we're at right now is actually where we were on March the thirtieth. But we but we decided to, to change permission. Well, I mean, I'm sure you can relate. It's been, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yep, know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been like one step forward, two steps back this year. Um, but yeah, we're very close. Um, the guy came around today from the from the, the government, the local government, the Gobernación, and he said he thinks Friday we're going to have the, the paper. Wow, that's super, man. And so is this, I, I presume step one is just selling locally? Um, or is there are there immediate plans for export? We have some contacts in Miami that are very interested. Um, I won't say who right now because I don't want to put them on the spot and make them f- make them feel pressure that they have to sell our gin. <laughs> you know. Now's the time to do it. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. they said they said on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the well, that's that that's that's great. So, because I did notice on the website that um, it's bottled at forty percent, and um, that was um, you know because I, I I don't know what the um, kind of uh regulations are in colombia um that's the minimum abv in the united states for export and that's different from country to country and, and the eu's uh, a couple degrees different but um you know whenever i see that 40 percent, i'm always like okay well this is planned to be an, an export um you know item to the united states was that part of the thinking or did you guys just really decide that 40 is like it landed where you wanted that flavor to be yeah um i didn't actually it might, it might have been on some of my business partners' minds that 40% was, you know, because they were, they were already exporting gin from Switzerland and they could think about that kind of thing. For me, that, that wasn't a consideration, but you're right. I mean, that is, that it, um, basically, for me as a bartender, and I'm sure you can, you can relate to this, um, you know, knowing your drinks and everything, but it's like, it's, you know, I don't think anything under 40% is, is, is really worth mixing with as a base spirit. As a, as a modifier, sure. Like Amaro's yeah, it's hard to stand up to everything else that might be in that drink. Yeah, so that was really, I was really dead set. And the thing is, in Colombia, 
is that every degree that you're over, I think it's 30 or 35% or no, maybe it's like 20, 28% volume. I think every degree over that is an extra tax bracket. Yeah. That's what I was wondering because I mean, it can get quite, and I know that there's kind of a similar in, in the United States and that's why we often see that 40% rather than, you know, I, I love like uh, Martinique and Agricole at, you know, 50, 55%, but um, it's, it's hard to get in here because, you know, it is expensive and it's a very niche product. Um, and so w when you're looking down the road, because you obviously have a, a pretty, um, solid background working behind bars, you know, what people, uh, what bartenders are thinking, what they're looking after as, as you just, you know, exhibited, you know, talking about your, your proof on the cocktails, you know, is this going to be something like we saw with, um, you know, like the 86 company, like chasing, like aiming for, the back bar attacking it and through that direction. I know these are like kind of marketing questions, which usually he, the guys on the floor aren't dealing with, but um, you know, kind of aiming for it in that direction or going the opposite direction and working on getting it into people's hands and then working its way into the bars. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess like a mixture, like we're definitely going to start in Colombia and with in Colombia, we're starting with bartenders um, because one of my partners is a chef uh, a Colombian from Bogota, but lives in Barranquilla, uh, not far from me on the Colombia on the Caribbean coast. Uh, my other partner lives in Medellin, and he won the Diageo World Class a couple of years ago. So he he knows a lot of people. Um, he won the Diageo World Class for for Colombia, and um, you know he's been traveling to Scotland and stuff with Diageo and doing all that kind of stuff. So he knows a lot of people. So basically, yeah, it's just kind of most of the contacts we have are other bartenders, um, and basically, yeah, that we're gonna it's basically into bars in Colombia, And then I guess it's like you, you, the premium gin bracket. Like I wouldn't say we're, I mean, I love what 86 did with the bottles that are so cool. We always, right. yeah, I know. For Who simple syrup, right. You know, <laughs> like, like, like they knew you were going to like, maybe order their product a bit more because it's perfect for simple syrup. You know, yeah. <laughs> they took one, they took one for the team on that. Cause I know they spent a ton of money developing those bottles. Yeah. Like they've dumped so much money into the design of that, which, Hey, again, thank you. Thanks for taking one for the team, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's really nice products. Like, I really like their gin. Um, I, I don't think I ever tried their vodka, but I'm not... To, be, to me, vodka never registers with me anymore. Right, right, um, yeah. Just, if it does its job, it's present. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, vodka's vodka, right? I mean, like, you know, maybe apart from, like, there's one... I think it's Canadian called Beatty's, which is a potato vodka, which really is beautiful and creamy and, you know... But, but mo you know, most grain vodkas, it's just, I don't even notice them, it's, right? It's just, you put it in an espresso martini, whatever. Um, so, so if you're attacking it on the on that angle with the bartenders, how's the, um, how is the craft scene there in uh, uh, Cartagena? Um, it's it's very small. And obviously right now it's suffering, you know, because of COVID. There's, there's, there's one big bar called Alchemico, which I think they just, they just got voted in the best 50 bars in the world. Hey, year. that's amazing. Congratulations, folks. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're really nice guys. I love everybody that works there. Like, I've never had a bad experience. Um, I've never had, like, a, a less than eight out of ten experience. You know what I mean? Like, everyone is just, like, on it. It's a bit more of a party bar, um, or it was. I mean, right now, I don't know what, how they're managing it. I haven't been yet. I've been too busy. Um, I'll have to go. They have industry, these industry Mondays. I'll have to go and, you know, it's a little bit quieter. You go and have a new grony or whatever. You know, um, but yeah, there's such a good bar. And there's one called El Baron, which is really nice as well. Um, and in Bogota and Medellin also, there's like there's like a few. There's uh, one called Bar Continental in Bogota, which is beautiful. And um, there's an American bartender, actually, Erin Rose, who worked at, she worked at Bourbon and Branch in um, San Francisco. She, she manages the uh, Takami group, and it's like 14, 15 bars she's in charge of. Her teams in every one of the bars i've been into are fantastic like she she's like doing a stellar job like imparting this knowledge that she, you know she's brought with her and she's really good at using colombian ingredients too and i really like these bars and there's a there's actually a, a liquor that a lot of these bars are using that you would like i don't know if you ever tried it called biche and it's uh, like a rum agricole from from colombia I've heard of it. Um, yeah, it's been on my radar, but again, not something that's accessible to me at the moment. So, yeah, I'm a sucker for any sugarcane yeah. spirit, you know, <laughs> and, you know, especially fresh, fresh sugarcane juice. Absolutely love it because of that terroir of it. It just uh, gets me all tickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you would love Vichy, and um, it comes from the Pacific coast. It's not really coming from where I am. It's the, it's the, the other coast of Colombia. Um but yeah, there's some beautiful stuff. There's one called Bayadores, which is like, ah, oh, there, there's a few good brands coming out now. There's quite a lot. Um, 
And again, you know, those are the exciting things happening. You know, people, it's when we don't have you on the show and we don't talk about these things that, you know, it can be forgotten about outside of the regionality of where you are. And I can tell you right now, I'm sitting here just like, oh, <laughs> when can I go to Colombia? I was like, now I know people. Now, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if COVID eases up and you make it down, then you can, like, I'll order some VJ ahead of time and make sure it's, it's Absolutely. Well, I would love to be trying some of the uh, Selvagen as well. That was when I was in Vietnam. I really regretted that we were just there for a few days and I didn't get a chance to uh, visit the um, distilleries that were making the rum I was drinking. So as you guys are moving forward, again, hopefully by posting date here, um, that it's going to be available. But uh, certainly if we have any Colombian listeners, where can people find you online? Where can they find your brand or even yourself? Whatever you're willing to put out there on, you know, um, I'm sorry, social media, all that, but like, let's start with uh, with uh, Silva. Yeah, well, we've we've started um, we started putting stuff up on Instagram in, in preparation preparation for launch, explaining a, a bit about the gin on Selva underscore gin on, on Instagram, and the website is selvagin.com. And I would say those are the two. We have a Twitter and a Facebook, but I'm really all about Instagram. I love yep, Instagram. Same, same. Yeah, <laughs> I, I Twitter. I every time I I check. The only time I use Twitter is to like send a message to a company that I'm mad at that has responded like not whatsoever through other channels. And then I, I look at the feed of the trends and I'm like, yep, this is why I hate Twitter. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> but Twitter, um, Twitter, Twitter can be fun, but it can be, it can be annoying as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Camper again, you know, um, he's gotten a more shout outs on this episode than I think ever, but um, right. nice. he told me that, that all the, uh, all the cocktail writers mm. like to hang out on Twitter. And so like, it's very easy for them to bounce back and forth and, and engage with one another there. So that makes sense. Um, so we've got you involved in Selvagen again, the book behind bars, high class cocktails inspired by low life gangsters available pretty much anywhere you get books. Um, certainly as you're looking for things this holiday season, I can't encourage you enough to please buy from local independent booksellers. If you can't find it any other way, um, certainly, you know, uh, order through Amazon or whoever you need to. But, um, you know, Powell Books is always a good opportunity to, to still spend money at a great bookstore that's not owned by Jeff Bezos. Um, <laughs> Jeff has enough money. He has yeah. plenty of money. We don't need him more, pay him more. But um, and so, I, again, I, I highly recommend snagging this book. It's fantastic. It's fun. And that's the hard thing to nail, right, is the funness. You, you get info out of it, but it's actually still legit fun. And, and certainly the illustrations help to carry that through. It kind of all makes it a, a coffee table book slash, you know, cocktail guide because if somebody really couldn't care less about um, looking through the, uh, the actual recipes, you're certainly going to recognize the films and uh, the illustrations. And it's just, it's really, really well done, Vince. Uh, I, I'm glad we were able to have you on the show. Uh, I'm definitely going to hunt you down if, if this, you know, the world ever Right. If, if yeah. the ship ever gets righted, you know, um, there's a long list of uh, of trips that I had to cancel this year, and hoping that we can, you know, get back to some sort of uh, semblance of normalcy. Yeah. So, good luck with the distillery. I, I'm going to keep my eyes peeled on Instagram, and hopefully, we'll be able to um, see your official announcement here coming up. Or actually, well, by the time this episode is up, uh, hopefully, you're already uh, you're selling. Yeah. Right. Fingers crossed, <laughs> yeah. man. Hope, hope so. Hope so. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, again, close. everybody out there um, listening to the show, also please you know check us out on Instagram, uh, Shift Drink Podcast, um, and please rate, review, all those things. I'm really bad at asking for that. Here we are like four years in or three and a half or whatever, and I never ask anybody to re rate or review, but um, it does pay off. It does help a little bit, and so um, just go and do those things. It's not make or break. I don't make money from this, so I couldn't care about that part of it. But, uh, you know, we want to get the word out, especially about really cool things like that. There's some really amazing things happening in, in South America. We want you to know about them. So uh, check us out, shiftdrinkpodcast.com. And again, Vince Pollard, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to uh, hang in person, and we're definitely going to have some, uh, some gin and tonics and, and discuss the, the rest of the things that we couldn't get to today. Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. See you soon. Thank you.